This is Climate One. We often talk about the need for a just transition from a fossil fuel-based economy to one that's more sustainable and healthy. That also means supporting poorer countries as they decarbonize, develop new industries, and adapt. All these countries were colonies for hundreds of years where labor and resources were extracted by design, not by accident. But it's not just a moral calculation. There are clear financial incentives for this shift. If we did transition the global economy in the way it needs to transition to low-carbon, people-friendly, nature-positive, there is a $26 trillion additional gain to the economy and millions more jobs. And the reality is, we don't have a choice. In the long run, countries will not be able to grow if they do not address the climate because the risk or the cost of climate will be so much higher. A global just transition, up next on Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. A fundamental injustice of the climate crisis is that the rich countries responsible for most greenhouse gas emissions have the money to adapt, and poor countries don't. According to the United Nations Development Program, 54 countries, accounting for about half of the world's population, are carrying so much debt they can't pay for climate adaptation and mitigation on their own. And most of these same countries are in the most climate-vulnerable parts of the world, which sets them up for expensive and compounding disasters. That means those in the developing world will likely need help from wealthy nations, which cause this situation, to transition to a clean energy economy. This is a thorny issue, with complicated interactions between finance and international aid, economic growth and national interests, resource development, and economic justice. It's complicated. So I invited an expert to help unpack all this. Ani Dasgupta is president and CEO of the World Resources Institute. He has experience ranging from nonprofits in India to the World Bank. New analysis from the International Energy Agency shows that the richest 1% of people in the world emit a thousand times more CO2 than the poorest 1%. Of course, we want to lift people out of poverty. But I asked Ani Dasgupta, if wealth and climate-disrupting pollution go hand-in-hand, how do we help people get richer without increasing emissions? That is centrally has become a justice conversation between richer countries and poorer countries, simply because, historically, richer countries have produced, because they become rich by industrializing, by burning fossil fuel. It's not their fault. That was, that was what is, was the norm 200 years back. But the fact is, that's how they become rich. And you go to Africa, who has produced 3% of emission out there in the atmosphere. So then naturally, the question is, you know, who should bear the brunt of paying for this right now? If an island in Fiji is going underwater because the sea level is rising, who should be paying for it? So the last um, time countries came together in Shamashag and in Egypt, the biggest win was this loss and damage fund. Rich countries finally, after 30 years, acknowledging that, yes, this damage that is happening that you can't recover from, um, if, it's a, if it's a village is going underwater because sea levels rise, you can't adapt to it. You have to move that village. That cost that they said, yes, we agree and we should pay for it. I mean, that's just the beginning. The fund is not there. But agreement to it is a very important part. And that's true inside a country. When climate-related impacts take place, it's the poor who suffer. You know, if there's a land you can't grow crop on, it's the poor, poorest farmer who suffer. Or oh, if there's no water, it's not the richest who suffer. 
because they can afford the rising costs. It's the poor who suffer most. I personally think the good news is vast evidence shows that it is possible to grow our economy and take care of climate on agriculture, on energy, on transportation. And not only that, that in the long run, countries will not be able to grow if they do not address the climate because the risk or the cost of climate will be so much higher that you won't be able to grow anymore. Research we have done shows if you did transition the global economy in the way it needs to transition to low carbon, people-friendly, nature-positive, there's a $26 trillion additional gain to the economy and millions more jobs. That is what the evidence is showing. But how does it happen in every country is something we need to all figure out uh, one by one. In every country transition will be different. Right. And the U.S. has shown the U.S. emissions have gone down while uh, the economy has gone up. So it has decoupled emissions from growth. So that's possible in a rich country. The question is how we does... actually showed 37 countries, Greg, uh, in our evidence that actually has bifurcated growth and carbon emission. And some of these countries were not the richest. Right. But there seems to be underlying this conversation that kind of richer countries are rich because somehow they've got some things that they, I don't know, do better. You know, most Americans don't have a passport. Very few travel outside the United States. So it's hard to develop empathy for people you've never seen. So how do we get to a place where there's more humanization and empathy of this conversation? You told me that you um, you interviewed Wanjira. Wanjira Matai, who's our head of our Africa program, and a leader on her own right. And she said, this is the gap here is a gap of empathy between countries, between people. The climate or the atmosphere doesn't have, doesn't, doesn't respect any national boundaries. It is across the world. And, and we cannot solve the problem without us coming together. A very good example of that, Greg, is that you know, we all talk about uh, climate change and quickly it becomes a discussion of energy, how we need to use different energy, how we need to move away from fossil fuel. All that is true. But at the same time, there are 740 million people in the world who don't have energy access. So for them, the question is not whether it's fossil fuel or not. The question is whether they have electricity in their home or not. Um, so we, So that is a very different problem than if you have a big car and you need an electric car. It's a very vastly different definition of the problem. And that is exactly why we need to have a global solution. Because some countries, actually, the energy demand is going up and we need to support them so they can actually get out of poverty, produce energy so they don't burn, they don't burn fossil fuel in their homes and kitchen, which causes the biggest amount of health issues for children and women. And they actually have alternate source of energy to cook, which is a basic, basic thing. There's a vast amount of population that doesn't have access to that. Only point I'm making, Greg, is that the problem of transition looks very different uh, from different countries. And um, I think empathy is absolutely needed. But I also must tell you that I'm actually quite encouraged how the current administration and the Congress um, pushed together three of the most ambitious climate-related policies ever in any country, especially in the United States, the infrastructure bill the Inflation Reduction Act, and the CHIPS bill. But what is very interesting to me that they frame that transition as an economic transition. You know, the word climate doesn't come up in any of the three bills. They're about shifting the economy 
creating job, focusing on Justice 40, which is what they've said. And I think that is the story in any country, that how do we transition our economy to a more competitive economy in the global, in the world? So what I'm saying is, if you focus on that transition, if you understand that transition, you would understand what other countries have to are going through. And that's what what the group of 20 is, is the world's 20th largest economies are working on that. They pledge to give Indonesia $20 billion to help retire coal plants early. This was seen as a huge breakthrough in funding a just transition. Yet Indonesia, the fourth most populous in the world, is still building new coal plants. You recently returned from Indonesia. What struck you personally there about a just transition? What struck me is how difficult and thoughtful we need to be in this just transition part. So here is a case where the government at the highest level, the president and the coordinating minister, very much pushed through a commitment to reduce their carbon emission. They are a very big coal-dependent country and to reduce coal, um, the commission actually, coal power pipeline, and move towards a just transition. The world pledged $20 billion, $10 billion public, $10 billion private. Now, the complexity of this is these power plants that are being built, they are being built because they are PLN, which is the oil the national utility, actually has long-term contract to buy power from them. On Depending on that, they actually have financing for this oil company. So there are contractual agreements that are existing already that allows these coal-fired plants to be financed by different countries, China, Korea, Japan. So the next step is to unravel and figure out how does one take this off the table and what negotiated outcome is for the financiers, for PLN to be themselves, so they don't go to jail because they are throwing out contracts. What I'm saying is this complexity of working through is the next step. There is a political commitment, then there is the economics and the financing of these transactions that are already in the books that you can't just wish away. You actually have to work one at a time to make sure. That's one side of it, to make it viable. The second side of it is to figure out what happens to employment for people who have to work in these places, which is what South Africa is trying to figure out, uh, which is a very important part of the Just Run. So uh, we have been encouraged uh, how South Africa has dealt with it. They created a commission under the precedent to actually look at the transition as a, as a multi multi-party, multi-voiced commission in South Africa. They're lucky to have a very strong labor movement who've been very much part of the conversation about training, who gets a job. And even there, it's difficult. But I want to say other side of the just transition, which is one is to moving from one kind of energy to another. The second is to make sure people benefit from this transition and don't lose out. People who have to work in the older fossil fuel economy. And the third side is that we also make sure the nature positive part is part of the story. It's not just energy. And Indonesia, Indonesia has been phenomenal in the last six years in reducing deforestation, that they will be net sink by 2030, which is a very important and significant. They're not just focusing on the just energy transition, but also focusing on the nature part. I do think, Greg, they need to do a lot more on the transition of employment part, which will come next as these 
different uh, plants get uh, decommissioned. So that's really helpful. Flipping off a, a coal plant is not so easy because there's lots of contracts and funding intertwined with them in Indonesia. The same is true in the United States as well. Job, Absolutely. Jobs are a key part of that. And then financing. Uh, and you, we talked about Indonesia, South Africa. A lot of the just transition there is actually as debt rather than just actual grants. And so the question comes up about how to help these countries without increasing the national debt, which in international development, that's been a big real problem, right? Loading up developing countries with crushing debt. So you've talked about the need $5 trillion to between what's spent and what's needed to make this uh, energy transition. Where will it come from? And will it all come from debt? So just on the, on the $5 trillion, the $5 trillion is how much money we would need for the transition by 2030. And it is one, num one of these numbers come from IEA, which is just the energy transition. Remember, it's not just the energy we need to transition. We need to transition agri agriculture, transportation, cement, steel, all the sectors. The more conservative uh, number has come from the World Bank, which is about a trillion dollars per year now. For your audience to give a sense of these, how large these numbers are compared to what the current transfers are right now from the richer countries to the poor countries to public and private sector, it's about five to six hundred billion dollar total if you add them up. So there is a magnitude of a half a trillion dollar gap right now, and it's going to increase exponentially as we go. So the question is, where will that money come from? I don't want to simplify this answer, but the simple on because it's a complicated answer right now. Public sector plays a big role in it, public finance, domestic public finance. But if you look at the global finance, Greg, the only place this amount of money can come from is actually a massive infusion of private capital into the transition because there's not enough public capital. If you add up the development banks like the World Bank and the Asian Development, there's not enough capital there. They can be very instrumental and catalytic in helping private sector move but we need private capital flow in Global South for the transition, which is not really happening at scale we need. Right. And when I was at the latest UN climate conference in Egypt and the, the African continent, spoke to a trade minister there who said that private capital sees investing in the global south as risky. The cost of capital is higher for countries that need it most to develop their economies. So now there is risk in developing countries. Is there also racial overtones to that? I don't know if there's a racial overtone to that. I do think people perceive risk differently for places they haven't worked in. Um, a lot of these funds are big fiduciary funds like life insurance and things like that. They do need you know, predictable capital return. Your and my pension might be in these funds. But the fact is absolutely true. The project in the United States might get funded at, say, 2% or 4%, whatever the number is, it might be 10% more expensive in Nigeria and Pakistan. The same project, exactly right. the same. And there's, there's also it, corruption risk, to be fair, right, in the countries. The, I think the risk people perceive are following, that historically there has been political risk. E existing contracts have been thrown out by some government fiat. The rule of, and the, that the, is why yeah, the rule of the, law. The rule of law. Rule of law. Yeah. That's why Indonesian PLN is so careful not to do that, um, right? For the coal one that I just mentioned, they're careful to figure out how to do it in the most negotiated way, so it doesn't look like they're not uh, following. So that's been one one big 
the lack of long-term contracts. These are all long-term contracts. There are other kind of foreign exchange risk, risks of policy. But I do think it is possible places like World Bank and others and IFC, the International Finance uh, Corporation, which is an arm of the World Bank that focuses on private capital, can do things to decrease the risk or resume the risk of this political risk or the risk policy risk that this uh, thing. And I think these are the kind of things need to happen. That's why the just energy transition in Indonesia is so important because the $10 billion private capital, it's sitting next to $10 billion public capital. So that $10 billion of public capital definitely could be used in a way that makes it possible and attractive for private capital to flow in this project. So, you know, this is the best case scenario, right? When there is an associated public capital there that can provide assurances to the private capital that this risk can be reduced. Coming up, a community in South Africa navigates the decommissioning of their local coal plant and the transition to renewable energy and what that means for local workers. If you're going to phase out the coal and you're going to close the power station that is using the coal, I'm thinking of my nine-year-old today. When she reaches my age, how is she going to survive? That's up next. Hi, Climate One listeners. We're working on an upcoming show about climate migration and want to know if you've moved within the U.S. for climate reasons, maybe to a new place with a better climate outlook. Or maybe you're concerned about a move you made for other reasons, like family or a new job, that took you to a place with more climate risk. Call our listener voicemail line to leave us a message with your story, and we may use it in an upcoming episode. The phone number can be found on our website, climateone.org, on the Contact Us page. Thanks. We're talking about how to create a just global climate transition with Anik Dasgupta, president and CEO of the World Resources Institute. According to the International Energy Agency, the transition to a cleaner economy will create 14 million jobs by 2030, at the same time, 5 million fossil fuel workers could lose their jobs. That's a net gain of 9 million jobs, but that's still 5 million people out of work. And these new jobs may not be in the same region and will require new skills. This is the crux of the just, just transition issue, employment, where it is and who's, whose employment is it. The transition can replace the job, in theory. That's the bottom line. But the biggest issue is where are these jobs? Um, because these jobs are not exactly where um, coal uh, plants were or natural gas plants were, because there is a logic to where you can build uh, wind energy and solar energy. There is a particular map, and that's where it is. So the labor mobility is a very big issue of justice. And I, I must say, I feel, and we all feel, that we have not focused in enough on the specificity of employment. We say, you know, 900 jobs, 800,000 jobs, but we need to focus on which jobs are changing, which jobs can be changed, and who needs training, where should it be located. This is something that's happening in states now here, uh, not all. We want to see more happening in South Africa, um, but not enough granularity is not there in place. I also want to say, Greg, that these big oil and natural gas companies in the world, I mean, United States, for example, actually right now have the most spendable capital 
in the in this in this business much more than the governments are and the most trained personnel so if these companies actually shifted they actually bring capital and personnel that you absolutely need for this transition with them so for me it'll be good to see when will these companies they're not yet in the path to transition but when they are that will be a very positive shift for all of us Right. In fact, they're actually going the other direction. They've uh, BP has backed off its climate commitments, et cetera. So they're spending capital where they get the most returns. You know, a WRI podcast on the just transition in India looked at what happened to the local community when some seemingly underused land was transformed into the world's third largest solar energy plant. Sounds really good, the, although the landowners got money, but the local agricultural laborers lost out. That land was no longer available to be farmed. What does that say to you about how clean energy can widen wealth gaps? And as you kind of alluded to earlier, the poor often get screwed either way. They do. And and, and that's why that example is a perfect example, Greg, that we need to be much more thoughtful about not only people and employment, that people in those communities are part of the decision making, that it is not just just transition, not just everyone's getting jobs. But communities that get impacted by whatever, if it's infrastructure, about land. Land is a big issue, both in the United States and in India, because both solar and wind require a lot of land. Transmission requires a lot of land. Um, and a deeper understanding of who is getting impacted. So an example, very similar example in South Africa, which is a well-meaning, the first decommissioning of a 60-year-old coal plant took place recently where they did they did the analysis they said no one will lose jobs and they said they will get trained all those good right thing but it turned out the community turned and basically said this is not good enough if you're giving a package that doesn't mean people are not losing jobs and also they said this is all about formal employees employees of the company there's a huge amount of contract or day laborers in this that got nothing about it so I just want to point out, you, you're absolutely right. We need to understand the complexity of who is getting impacted and who is part of the ecosystem, not only directly employed by the coal plant, who is dependent on the coal plant, for example. And that is a bigger ask than just training of employees that actually you're employing right now. So this, Greg, is also a political question of power um, and how people participate in decision-making because a lot of it is very top-down right now, right? If you think about just any chance in Indonesia or South Africa, government has made a plan to do this. But how it gets implemented and how just it is, I think will not only matter for its, for a moral side, Greg, I actually think you won't be able to implement these if people do not see benefit out of it because they won't elect the government who is pro these things next time. It's a political issue, right? Right, right. And, and oftentimes the, the costs are today and the benefits are tomorrow or in the future or somewhere else. And that's one of these challenges. You know, developing countries are often characterized as climate victims. You know, I spoke with your colleague, Wanjira Matai, leader in Africa. She said the problem with that framing is it makes it sound like people in developing countries are sitting around doing nothing. And so how do you think about the language and framing? Because, you know, there is... We've learned in the last few years, certainly I have, how white supremacy is enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. The global north tends to be these white countries that somehow these developing countries, they're less developed because of a, some kind of reason, right? 
there's sort of yes there's, there's sort of i think a big reason of is is that these countries that we are talking about just now all these countries were colonies for hundreds of years where labor and resources were extracted by design not by accident um so you can't forget that right this is not by accident these countries are poor right now poorer not they are mm-hmm. some of these countries are not poor indonesia is not a poor country mm-hmm. uh, it's a middle and south africa is not uh, but they are poorer because extraction of labor and, and resources um and we need to acknowledge it i mean that is that is why this is such a tricky conversation um that is why it took us 30 years to have a loss and damage fund but i must i must say that i just came back visiting four countries and let me list them uh, ethiopia Kenya, Rwanda and then Indonesia. Um and I met with senior leadership of ministers, uh, presidents and not single one of them think they are a victim. And not a single one of them I felt oh my god they're reluctantly embracing what they need to do. They are rushing forward. They are they know what needs to be done that climate is a reality their people are suffering. They need to do something and not wait around. and each one of them i can actually list what they're doing so i very much agree with vanjira i think this this uh, this idea that they're just sitting around being a victim that's just a misrepresentation these are ambitious leaders they're trying to figure out what to do in a very difficult situation how do you do this okay we agree just transition but what does it mean how do you do it we'll hear more from ani dasgupta in a little bit But now we're going to take a closer look at one of the examples he mentioned in partnership with Foreign Policy's climate podcast Heat of the Moment. Reporter Elna Schutz visits a community in South Africa where a coal-fired power plant was recently decommissioned by the country's utility Eskom using a just transition framework. While funding and plans have been put in place to help the community recover after losing its main economic engine, many locals remain concerned about their present situation. Komati is a small quiet town in rural South Africa in the Mpumalanga province. Really small. The kind where chickens run in between the houses, which are all older brick buildings and look a bit the same. The town has the same name as one of the oldest power plants in the country, built in the 1960s, and with good reason. The fate of Komati village has long relied on that of the plant and its accompanying mines. But Ward Cancer Edward Nyambi explains that just a few days before I visit in November 2022 everything has changed. On Monday they were shutting down the power station. So we as a community and the people that were working there we are very very disappointed but we cannot do anything on that because they've explained to us that the power station is too old. Kansan Nyambi is in a tricky situation. On the one hand, his community needs jobs and investments, like clinics and more public spaces. But on the other, the power utility and Eskom have long supported the area and have to fulfill their climate commitments. In fact, all of Komati is stuck in this balance. We can theorize a lot about how a just energy transition should work. But here's an example of what it actually looks like on the ground when it happens. We are entering into this just energy transition phase by converting that that power station into these three technologies: wind, photovoltaic and natural gas. 
That's Sikunati Manchancha, the national spokesperson for the country's power utility, ESCOM. And we are training the, the staff that was working at the power station to actually be technicians that can build, that can assemble and that can maintain the renewable energy components at that power station. Noela Molefe, a senior advisor from the ESCOM team, talked about how the existing energy infrastructure in this part of South Africa is a key reason why jobs should be able to remain in the area. So Mpumalanga is very uh, well endowed with a lot of resources and can easily become the energy hub for the energy transition and is more likely to transition more quickly than any other place in the country. Most of the power stations were are situated in Bumalanga, and therefore we have the grid that is already readily available to connect the renewable energy. So that is one um, positive aspect for Bumalanga, as well as the people. Um, we've just reflected on the unemployment rates, and there are approximately two hundred thousand people that can be trained or reskilled um, to work in the renewable energy sector. While the future is bright, the immediate implementation is tricky. On that Monday, the plant is decommissioned and some of the workers or contractors are sent home. On the Thursday, ESCOM hosts a town hall consultation in Kamati. Many attendees are reacting to the company's plans with scepticism and derision. Margaret Mashlangu was born in the area and has lived in Kamati since the 80s. She's worked at the power station for many years, hopping from one contract to another with different service providers. She says working for the coal plant is all she's known. I started as um, a general worker, which is a cleaning service, accommodations and logistics. Her latest contract ended a few weeks ago, with no clear prospect of a new one on the horizon now that the station is decommissioned. Yeah, that is very difficult because there's nothing that you can do. So when you work, especially on contracts, it's like from hand to mouth. You cannot invest on anything. Margaret is trying to help herself and the community in the shorter term by growing vegetables on a small plot of land. Still, she feels that the people on the ground aren't being helped. So people will survive. We will live with or without, even though we know that there are people who are going to benefit even more, not even thinking about the people that on the ground, how do they survive, like now? You can't just move to another place to work. This is Carlos Villanculas. He used to be a welder at the power station. He worries about finding a new job. Yeah, the, the future, it's 50-50. It's like a coin. I might say we're going to win, and I can also say we're going to lose. So we will just wait and see. There are a lot of questions swirling around tonight, and the answers offered by the ESCOM representatives seem to be doing little to assuage the concerns in the room. What did we miss? While the consultants and power utility representatives are clearly trying to come up with solutions in a difficult situation, for the community members suddenly sitting without jobs, the future is scary. Here's Margaret again. If you're going to phase out the coal and you're going to close the power station that is using the coal, I'm thinking of my nine-year-old today that in my age, when she reaches my age, how is she going to survive? 
Margaret is glad there are consultations happening, but she feels they are somewhat lacking. They've consulted with the portion, a small portion of the community, and the information that was convicted, it was never given to the community at large. But the ESCOM spokesperson, Sikunati Manchancha, is more optimistic about the longer-term future. The reality, though, is you may see initially when the power stations close some job losses, but over time you start a new industry altogether. This will be a net job uh, creator. There are estimated 300,000 jobs to be created out of renewables in, the, in, in those areas over the next 20 years, which is way more than uh, you currently have in coal and can ever have. Filling the gap between what's planned and the reality on the ground will take a collective effort that all these different players, from ESCOM to the government, are trying to make central. Lives are being disrupted, but the hope is that the investments being made today will pay off not just for the climate, but for the community as well. The World Bank has been working closely with the government and ESCOM for many years. Here's the country director for Southern Africa, Marie-Francoise Marie-Nelly. What uh, we understand is that for one job lost, uh, there will be two or even three new jobs created. Unfortunately, uh, the challenges are that the jobs may not be created in the same area where they will be uh, lost. And secondly, the new job may not be able to occur at the same time. So that means that there is a need to have a proper strategy to support not only the employees, but also the communities. While plans have been put down on paper, whether this all works out is another question. That was reporter Elna Schutz with Heat of the Moment podcast, a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Coming up, a key and often overlooked aspect of this shift. Every time you hear about climate, you hear about energy, which is obviously important. But I must point out that it's just half the story. Most people in the world, the poor people in the world, are employed on land and agriculture. And agriculture produces 35% of emission in the world. That transition is as important as energy transition. That's up next. Hey, Climate One fans, we have some exciting news. We are now on Patreon. That means that you, as a subscriber, can get access to Climate One episodes free of ads interrupting your listening experience. For just $5 a month, your Patreon membership also gets you access to our Climate One Discord channel, where you can discuss the episode with other Climate One fans and begin to build your own climate community. Best of all, your support makes future Climate One episodes possible. Join us today at patreon.com slash climate one. We're exploring the idea of a global and just transition, helped by our friends at the podcast Heat of the Moment, a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Now we head to Bolivia, where Amy Booth reports on the country's nascent lithium mining and EV industries. I'm in Cochabamba in central Bolivia. This is a beautiful city where the avenues and squares are lined with immense palm trees and intense purple bougainvillea flowers spill over the walls of the houses. You can see why it's known as the city of eternal spring. But despite its beautiful weather, the city faces a pernicious problem. It's so polluted here that the municipal government has declared three Sundays a year as car-free days to clear the air. 
It's pretty clear why people living here might want to switch to cleaner forms of transport, but there's one problem. How are Bolivians supposed to switch away from gasoline when electric cars are so expensive? Even the cheaper Tesla models tend to cost at least $40,000. That's more than 10 times what the average Bolivian earns in a year. Then, a local businessman had an idea. Maybe the solution to Cochabamba's pollution problem didn't involve Teslas. What if there was a company that made electric cars right here in Bolivia? In America Latina, el in Latin America, the traffic is pretty slow. For example, the average in Mexico City is 13 kilometers per hour. In Lima, it's 12 kilometers per hour. We don't need a car as fast as a Tesla. We need something that moves well in cities and is cheap at the same time. That's Jose Carlos Marquez, the founder and CEO of Quantum Motors, Bolivia's first car company. They came to market in 2019 and all their vehicles are electric. On a sunny weekday morning, Adriana, a quantum employee who also owns one of the cars, drives me to the factory. The engine sounds less like a traditional car and more like some kind of spaceship. There's a driver's seat and room for one or two people in the back or a large load of shopping. It's a modest vehicle, there's no trunk and some models struggle with hills. But for people who live in the city, it's a practical option to get to work or the market. Depending on the model, they cost between $6,000 and $8,000 new. It's still a lot of money for most Bolivians, but it's a lot cheaper than a Tesla. The factory is in a big warehouse out in the western suburbs. Near the door, teams of engineers are wiring in bright yellow and black battery packs, while further back, others hammer parts into place and spray paint the doors. In a corner, sparks fly like fireworks as the mechanic cuts pieces with an angle grinder. After a quick look around, I sat down for a chat with Eunice Muñoz, an industrial engineer at Quantum's factory. Well, right now, what we are offering is a range of 50 kilometers with a maximum speed of 50 kilometers per hour. But we are making progress already. You could say that with the new 105 amp lithium batteries we have, we are managing a range of nearly 80 kilometers and a better speed. Munoz just mentioned something crucial, lithium. Bolivia is home to the world's largest lithium deposits. Together with northern Argentina and Chile, it forms South America's so-called lithium triangle, a region that contains around 50 million tons of lithium resources, according to the US Geological Survey. Just under half of it, around 21 million tons, is in Bolivia, the largest known lithium deposits in the world. That's more than four times as much as China's reserves. A car battery requires around eight kilos of lithium, depending on the model. The lithium is mostly around the Saladu Uni, the world's largest salt flat. Unlike metals such as tin and silver, it doesn't come from a mine, but rather is extracted from the brine under the surface. The solution is pumped into giant evaporation pools so it can dry out and become concentrated. Then, the lithium is extracted via chemical treatment and filtration. But while Chile and Argentina have become major producers and exporters of lithium, in Bolivia, bringing it to market has proved more complicated. The Saladu Uni is in a remote part of southwestern Bolivia, where infrastructure is less developed than it is over the border in Chile. Many of the region's roads aren't paved, 
and there aren't many high-tension power lines either. The government is currently in the process of selecting a foreign company to partner with state lithium company Yacimientos de Litio Bolivianos, or YLB for short, to kickstart large-scale extraction and work on increasing yields. Despite these challenges, Bolivia has started to commercialize small quantities of lithium, including the production of lithium batteries. In mid-2022, Quantum began using nationally produced lithium batteries in its cars. This is Jose Carlos Marquez of Quantum Motors. Since Bolivia is the country with the largest reserves, we like that we are pioneers and that at the same time we can think that we are not just going to be a raw material exporters, we're adding value to the point that we already have a finished product. For Bolivia, Quantum is a tech sovereignty success story, showing that the country isn't limited to exporting raw materials, but are the communities nearest to Bolivia's lithium deposits seeing the benefits of what many hope is an incipient lithium boom? I travelled to the edges of the salt flats to find out. I'm on the main street of Rio Grande, about 600 kilometres from Bolivia's administrative capital of La Paz. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Rio Grande made a name for itself extracting first lime and then borax and ulexite, minerals with many industrial uses, from the deposits here, just outside the village. But now there's a new gig in town. About three miles away, YLB has built its vast flagship lithium plant, the Planta Yipi. Some people thought that would be a turning point in the town's fortunes. Donny Ali is a lawyer and businessman who's also from Rio Grande. The idea that his small community was about to transform into a bustling commercial hub inspired him to open the aptly named Lithium Hotel in 2016. But the reality hasn't lived up to his expectations. I thought that having the Lithium Hotel here, it might be the accommodation center for investors, business people who would come here for the Lithium. A lot of the professional people who might come and work on the project. But that, that's not what happened. So far, the main job lithium has brought to Rio Grande has been driving trucks. But Ali says truckers were disappointed to discover that the pay was actually lower than in the borax industry. What's more, the truck driving work came with conditions attached. Unlike borax and ulexite, lithium extraction is a water-intensive industry, and he says it was part of an agreement whereby YLB gave them work in exchange for being allowed to extract the community's water. Now, Ali and others worry that they don't know how much water is left. Although they've given us the opportunity to work with the skips on the salt flats, they haven't fulfilled their other commitments, like for example keeping us informed about the water levels in San Jerónimo Wells. And we don't have precise information about how much water is being consumed each day and what reserves are left either. I spoke over the phone to Merardo Ramos Lopez, cacique, that is, leader of Maiku Villamar, a remote indigenous Quechua community of 580 people. Recently, Merardo went out to the Pastos Grande Lake and got a nasty shock. So, on that occasion, we visited the lake and the Pasto Grande salt flats, and we found that YLB is currently exploring there. The lake is on his community's land, he said, and the community should have been offered prior consultation before works began. But even though he's the cacique, he didn't know about it. When he spoke to YLB officials, they told him they already had the environmental permits. Really, I'm angry. How, how is it possible? 
They are working without taking account of an indigenous community. Dr. Diego von Vacano, a political science professor at Texas A&M University, who has worked as an advisor on lithium policy to Bolivian President Luis Arce, agrees that YLB needs to do more to consult and include local communities in the area where it's extracting lithium, as well as cutting down on water consumption. But going forward, there are reasons to believe it could improve. I think the new technologies will not necessarily use uh, water to the extent that uh, they have been using in Chile, for example, with very bad effects on the environment. So I think if Bolivia, using the right technology, using less or almost no water eventually, He's referring here to direct lithium extraction. That's a new method of extracting lithium. It's a developing technology that's still being scaled up. But if they can get it to work in Bolivia, it would not only use far less fresh water, it would also be faster because it doesn't rely on waiting for water to evaporate from the ponds. In the 2000s, Bolivia largely nationalized its oil and gas industry and plowed the profits into social programs that helped to reduce poverty. Now, with gas reserves dwindling, the government's dream is that lithium could do the same. That was reporter Amy Booth from the podcast Heat of the Moment. Their whole season is focused on these questions surrounding a global and just transition. Check it out wherever you get your pods. I also talked about Bolivia's lithium resources with Ani Dasgupta of the World Resources Institute. We discussed the difficulties presented by mining, a historically dirty and dangerous business, even in pursuit of materials essential to a green economy. They could be a dirty deal, but there are ways, Greg, for for countries like Bolivia, countries like um, Democratic Republic of Congo, which has a vast cobalt resource um, deposit that you need for uh, electrification of cars. What should we be doing? We should be all should be helping these countries to develop as safe a mining practice as possible. And not only that, as much of the value added. So what happens in cobalt in uh, um, in, uh, in DRC? They get mined and oh, the whole... Often by, chil- by children. Yes, terrible labor practices. They actually get ore and shipped to another country to get processed. All the value added jobs are not in DRC. So this is exactly what we should be helping these countries so that they actually have a resource now that they have a developer practice that does not include children. And they, we know what safe mining practices look like uh, and how we can help these countries to develop an industry that is low carbon, that creates a value-added job. Because these countries, let, let just, I mean, we have to recognize Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, because I just, it's in my close to my heart because I've met with a lot of people. I was in Rwanda, they all came. Is a country that is at, I think $550 per capita income, right? And a huge colonial uh, legacy there from King Leopold. Terrible, terrible. Right. So that country, if you think about it, absolutely needs growth, economic growth, employment, livelihood increases of its people so that income rises. That is a political leadership. That is the primary occupation to make sure a country that actually can grow. So we need to not just talk about decarbonization, we should be talking about how does what does this modern industrialization look like at this moment for this country? What would create employment? What will be green, nature positive that can protect the absolute treasure of tropical forests that the Congo has, the Congo Basin has, a lot of it is in DRC. So what's an example of a model that is a just transition? Where, where's a case study that you say this country or this locality 
got it right? What's the shining model? I don't think there's a country that then in the global south I can say. Um, I do think there are examples of what could it look like. I'll give you one very specific example um, that's very fresh in my mind. Vast amount, 60% of Africa's land is degraded. So it's a huge potential of, and, and a massive amount of people, more than 60% people are dependent on land for the employment. So you can imagine if you make the land productive, it, it's a huge impact for us. So one of the programs that we are doing with the African Union is how to restore this land. So that would seem like a good thing to do. I met a entrepreneur, very small uh, entrepreneur, um, three women firm. Um, that's been that it seems could not raise any money, um, but got a small amount of money from this project that we're doing, not much more, like hundred thousand or something. Number. And what they do is they buy macadamia nuts from farmers, process them, open them, and sell commodity macadamia nuts to the world uh, as a commodity. So that's what they do. And by doing this with farmers, they are able to restore land because provide healthy growth of macadamia trees, which is once you grow them, it's a multi supporting farmers to learn how to do them and take care of macadamia trees. They have now 7,000 farmers they are supporting. This small firm uh, of, uh, of three people and their ambition is to support 180,000 farmers like that. This is an example for me, Greg, where you're creating an economic opportunity to 7,000 farmers, doing it sustainably, providing income, creating new business that has its own cycle, own virtual cycle of growth. Because as I said, these three women have ambition plan to grow. They just raised a million dollar in private capital. These are the kind of things we need to be seeing across the world that we actually have a plan of economic development so people have an option. Um, otherwise, people will be dependent on uh, of, of destroying the forest they have because if there's no other opportunity uh, for them. And that's a very visceral example for me when I met this um, team or this firm that what needs to happen, but one small unit at a time. There's not one silver bullet you do this and it's done but how do you grow this new kind of economy that is supportive of the recovery we need and the shift to a low carbon future right and that million dollars is kind of it's not microfinance it's not big uh, dollar project finance and it's there's money out there but there seems to be gaps in like how does someone how do you get that money? you need to do that for a million people right, right? that million yeah. dollars how do you find all those people and what's the infrastructure to get to match the people with the money that's that's what's missing here uh, that is what there's a very 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 fantastic program we are part of with that called AFR 100 Africa Restoration uh, project 100, 100 is 100 million hectares of land that the governments have agreed. Actually, they've agreed to restore 121 million hectares. 31 countries are part of the African Union. This is the kind of way I feel. And I, I want to highlight this example simply because I think too much of the just transition or transition is very focused on energy, which is needed. Because everyone, every time you hear about climate, you hear about energy which is obviously important, but I must point out that it's just half the story. Most people in the world, the poor people in the world, are employed on land and agriculture, and agriculture produces 35% of emission in the world. That transition is as important as energy transition. 
Right, and, then, and, yeah. and more more connected to livelihoods than energy transition. Personally, I'm worried that the underlying problems of human greed and capitalism itself are such that tinkering with the financial rules are are not going to be enough. What's your take on capitalism, and can it really can we solve this energy transition and this equity transition within the structure that we have? The current system of how we allocate capital is not producing the results we want at all. Because actually, if you look at last, every country in the world, including the United States, the division between rich and poor actually increasing. Our societies are becoming more unequal as we go forward. But my answer to your question is, I actually do not think I am viscerally against capitalism, which means a market's ability to allocate capital to the right places that is needed. It's that our capitalism is not valuing the right things. It is only valuing profit of a particular kind while we are extracting from labor and from nature at, a, at free cost. So if, if we had a capitalism that actually valued what, what the, the atmosphere we're destroying or the, or the pristine tropical forest we're destroying to produce soybean in Brazil, or labor we're extracting without paying for it. We need that capitalism. Yeah, the, the capitalism need, that values the, the, the pollination that bees do for us that helps our food without which we couldn't exactly. have our food. Right? Or biodiversity. Um, that is critical. So World Economic Forum published a report, I think two years back, saying out of the $80 trillion that is a global economy, $44 trillion dependent on nature providing the services providing. Think about that for a second. More than half of the capital of the world is dependent, yet our system that we have doesn't reward, doesn't penalize or reward you for taking care of nature or destroying it. It's just ambivalent. Um, so my answer to your question, Greg, yes, it is not, um, we don't have a system right now that actually allows us to produce a world um, that will be sustainable. And our, we, all of us, all seven and a half billion people will be equal parts of it. It's just extracting one part to reward another part, both of people and of nature. And we just, we have to have a system that doesn't do that. Uh, you have a book coming out in the fall called The New Global Possible, Seven Reasons to be Optimistic About the Planet. What's your personal number one? My personal number one? That, that's why it's called seven, Greg. I'm asking you to pick your favorite child. <laughs> My favorite child is our ability. If you look, the book is about looking backwards and seeing the mountains we have climbed, that things we have done to get us here. We don't realize it. We take it for granted that the UNFCCC exists or we can actually count carbon. And so the book is about that we actually have done difficult things as a society, as a human race. We need to do more difficult things. Our, my optimism about the book is about coming together and solving problems. So my biggest, um, can I get two? Sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my biggest is our ability as a, as, a, as a world to come together to solve problems. Everyone, when Ukraine war took place, every article in the world said how the world is going to fragment and we will have regionalism. Remember China? and Saudi Arabia buying oil, uh, selling oil and not in dollars and all this. However, by the end of the year, in December, the world came together in Montreal for the biodiversity conference. Every country actually came together and signed up 
to an am- ambitious outcome that we didn't expect. It was even more ambitious than we expected of 30. The fact that in a year, that was a really difficult year of distress, war, inflation, that countries could come together and see the higher good, the bigger good, the bigger beyond us that the world needs. It gives me, gives me hope that, it, that, it, that we can come together. Ani Dasgupta is president and CEO of the World Resources Institute. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your travels with us. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having me. On this Climate One, we've been talking about the complexities of a global transition to a healthier and more equitable future. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Talking about climate can be difficult, sometimes awkward, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper, meaningful climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Our producers and audio editors are Ariana Brocious and Austin Cologne. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wincy Shada is our development manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.